Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that, uh, that we get to gather and we can open up the Bible and we don't have to whisper. I pray that you would let our time be fruitful. I pray that you would uh, let us grow in an understanding of you, but I, I, I pray that it's not just head knowledge. I pray that there's actually fruit being produced as, as we um, increase in our knowledge of who you are. And I pray that as we increase in our knowledge of who you are and what you're doing, what your plan is, uh, my prayer is also that, um, that uh, we would grow in wisdom and we would have a proper fear of you. Um, Lord, we thank you uh, for our time tonight and pray that you would guide it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Genesis 28, please. <clears throat> All right, last week we started Genesis 28. Hopefully tonight we're finishing Genesis 28. The plan was to finish it last week. That didn't work, never works. Um, but uh, this is the chapter where Jacob is essentially he's leaving home. He just did the whole weird goat hair fooling dad thing and Esau wants to kill him, and mommy says he should leave. He's 70 years old. It's weird. Um, and so he's heading out, and um, that's where we find ourselves. A couple things before we jump into the chapter, and we'll recap from last week. Uh, why do some of these chapters become hard to endure at some point? Remember, I shared the example last week of my loving wife explaining how it felt like we were in chapter 27 for forever, and... Uh, and it, was, it seemed a little tedious, and, and, and there was a reason for that. You remember what that was? No pain, no gain. Yeah, no pain, no gain. That's right. You will endure the teaching, yeah. What kind of people are we engaging here? Sinful people, much like ourselves. It shouldn't be quite such a foreign concept, but we're engaging sinners in the text here. What else? What are some of the sins that we're, we're uh, having to endure as we study this in depth? Lying. Lying. Deception. Self-serving. Self-serving. Did we mention lying? Yeah. <laughs> Covered in goat hair like a big goober. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, these... Um, Sometimes the Bible is quoted uh, inappropriately, wrongly, whatever, as, well, so-and-so said this, so it must be right. And one of the things that we're learning as we start at the beginning in Genesis and we go through is that someone may have said something and it may be included in the canon of Scripture to show us what not to do and how not to live and what not to say. And it's interesting because what we're talking about in Genesis is these people who are God's redeemed people. We're talking about Father Abraham. We're talking about Isaac. We're talking about Jacob. And what we're seeing mostly is that they're complete boneheads and morons and bad decision makers and hard-headed and stubborn and self-serving. And so what we're seeing really from the get-go is that God is, is redeeming a people out of their sinful nature, out of their wickedness, out of worldly ways, and, and making them something that they're incapable of being outside of God intervening and making some serious changes. And sometimes it's hard because there's so much foolishness and, and faithlessness that it is, um, it, sometimes it's kind of disheartening because you're thinking, well, th- this is the cream of the crop. This is who God selected out of the whole world to, to, to uh, call out a people for himself. 
But what we realize is that that's what he does and that's what he's doing now. And we're not better than them. It's not like we figured it out. We're not nearly that bad. We're just as foolish in a a thousand other different ways. Um, From a big picture view, what is God doing? Just, I, I want us to take a bird's eye view. What is God doing? I've mentioned it already. He's accomplishing his will. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, he's putting his people together, making a nation. For what purpose? To glorify himself. It's for his honor. He's calling these people out and changing them, not so that the world's a better place and they're happier and they know why they exist. It's for his glory. That's what he's doing. So he's gathering the people, calling them out, and at the end of of, of time in Revelation 18, you see God doing the same thing, saying, come out of her, my people. And so it's, that's what he's doing. It was his plan from before time existed. He made the plan. Then he created time for that plan to take place in. And what we know from Isaiah 44, 6 is that God accomplishes all of his purposes. So anytime we see a promise from God or something that he's doing, we can be sure that that is what is going to happen, even if there's times of uncertainty like we'll engage in this chapter. Another question we considered last week is, do you believe people can change? Um, the reason we brought that up is that um, it, I don't know why, um, but for whatever reason, it's very easy for Bible-believing Christians to grow very cold and skeptical. And we're not supposed to do that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to share the gospel with someone and walk away and say, they're never going to change. We're not supposed to meet someone in their sin and and say, hey, this is really not what God would have for you, and and show them Scripture and then walk away skeptical, thinking, hopeless. In Christ, there are no hopeless situations. We have hope that that people change, and in fact, if we don't have that hope, we don't have any hope for ourselves either, because we didn't muster anything good to be um, favored by God. The favor we have from God is undeserved. And so we have to believe that God can change people now the same way that he has changed people here in the beginning. What are some of those changes that we've witnessed? Just in the last few chapters of Genesis with Rebecca and Jacob and Isaac and, and not so much Esau, but some of the others. What are some of the changes we've witnessed? Yeah. Yeah, Isaac went from what to what? Yeah. Yeah. And what happened when Isaac thought he had been duped and fooled? Remember, he was shaking violently. He was so hacked off. He was, I mean, if you've ever been fooled by someone and made to look like an idiot, that's where he was. And he was shaking violently. And in the middle of that, it says, yes, and he shall be blessed. Because what we see is that God changed him. He changed his heart. It was in faith that he blessed Isaac. Uh, What were some other changes that we've seen? even as recent as last week in Jacob's life. What was Jacob in most of Genesis 27? <laughs> she said, let's just say dependent. That's, that's a sweet way of putting it. Smooth. Huh? Wasn't really a believer. A liar. What else? Y'all want to say he's a mama's boy. He was a sissy. He was a pansy. He was, he was smooth-skinned. He was worried about his brother Esau, who was the hairy one. 
And, he, and he's like 70 at this point now. He was like 60, and then a few years past, he's like 70 at this point. So it's, it's kind of weird, but, but what happened this last, last week in chapter 28 that we engaged? He leaves home. He's finally spreading his wings at the young age of 70, learning who he is, taking on the world, becoming a little bit independent. Why is he leaving home? Yes, his brother wants to kill him because he stole the blessing. So he's kind of on the run in a sense. And mommy said, you should probably leave. And then she complains about the Hittite women, and then he leaves. Um, uh, Why did um, Isaac bless Jacob again? At the beginning of 28, it says Isaac calls Jacob and he blesses him before he sends him on his way. Why did he do that? To confirm it, yeah, because if that hadn't happened, what would happen is Isaac would look, or Jacob would look back with regret. Jacob would look back and say, man, that didn't happen the way it was supposed to. But now we know it was in faith. We know that God's plan was fully accomplished because their, their lives were set forth while they were still in the womb, and God said, the older will serve the younger. And so God again said, this is my purpose. It looks weird to all of you, but it will be accomplished no matter what. We see it accomplished in here in a very sober state of mind. Isaac says, Jacob, yes, and you're blessed, and I'm going to send you on your way, and I'm going to make sure you know that you're blessed, so that when he looks back, he doesn't look back with, with regret, but he can look back with certainty and with joy. Um, how did Esau imitate christian ways in last week? Let me just read Genesis 28 up until a certain point, and I want you all to tell me how Esau imitated christian ways. Then Esau called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. Verse 1, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of, Laban's, of Laban, your mother's brother. Uh, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your uh, sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, Aramean, whatever, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob, uh, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, uh, besides the wives that he had, that's not a good decision, Mahaloth, the daughter, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. So how did Esau try to kind of go through the motions a little bit? What did he do? Yes, he did not marry a Canaanite, but he married another woman, problem, and he married an Ishmaelite also a problem, but he didn't marry a Canaanite. So he knew that they didn't like him, their sons to marry Canaanite women, and so he didn't marry a Canaanite woman. So he's trying to gain favor there. He was trying to gain a blessing, and it's kind of indicative of those times where we are foolish and we just try to go through the motions without having our heart in it, without being devoted to the Lord. Esau doesn't care a thing about God or God's ways, God's desires, God's commands, but he wants to be blessed. And he's seeing, well, I already lost this blessing. And they said that he'll marry a Canaanite woman, or he can't marry a Canaanite woman. So I won't marry a Canaanite woman either. I'll just marry another woman, an Ishmaelite. But he's just trying to go through the motions 
and, and receive some kind of blessing, and that's not the way that it works. What happened for the first time ever in this chapter? We're about to continue reading it, but what happens for the first time ever in chapter 28? Yeah. Yeah. Jacob, up until this point, has heard a lot about God. This has happened to, to all of us at some point, where you, you may grow up in a family, you hear about God, you may not hear a lot about it, you may hear a little about it, you may hear people talking about it, him, God, um, and you may know things of God, but there may have been no personal interaction between you and God at a point. And then here we see the first, for the first time ever, there's a personal interaction between Jacob and God. And who initiates that interaction? God. That's very important. No one ever says, okay, God, I got my junk together. I'm not an idiot anymore. I stopped drinking, and I'd like to hear from you now. I'm all ears. That's not how it works. God initiates it. He's the one who meets you in your sin. Every one of us, if we have had any interaction with God at all, it's because while we were still sinners, he met us in our sin. Now, he didn't say, it's okay, just keep sinning. He met us, and he changes us, and he commands us to live in a certain way. But none of us initiate it. We don't muster. We don't reach down deep inside and find what, what's good and give it to the Lord. He's not knocking on the door and we have to open it and let him. It's, it, he initiates it and he engages us in that conversation and in, um, in, in our lives. So the rest of Genesis 20, look at uh, chapter 10 or verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in a place to sleep. So his pillow was a rock, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of it were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it. God is standing there above this ladder and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. This is just almost word for word what was said to Father Abraham two generations before. The dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What does Jacob not have at this point? He's hearing that in your offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed. The whole earth will, be a, will receive blessing because of what God is saying the whole earth will receive blessing because of what I, God, am going to do through your family. And what does Jacob not have? He doesn't even have a woman at this point, much less babies. And he's in the wilderness, and he's by himself, and he's 70. Behold, verse 15, I am with you. But he's not by himself, really. God says he's with him. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Captain Obvious. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I will go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth, a full tenth to you. Last week, we, we started looking at this ladder, Jacob's ladder, and we're going to look at it again this week. Uh, lots of songs and have been written about this. 
Uh, movies have been made about it. Art has been composed concerning this vision that Jacob has because it's a pretty, um, pretty crazy occurrence that happens here. Uh, uh, Huey Lewis wrote a song about it. That's not so big a deal. Led Zeppelin wrote a song on the Led Zeppelin 4 album. Fantastic. The name of the song, Stairway to Heaven, obviously. Um, this has influenced people, but it influences people sometimes in the wrong way where they, where they think, finally, we have a ladder that, that, that is on earth that, that reaches to heaven, and we can climb it. So now that we have this ladder, we'll just climb and climb and climb and work hard. But the reality that we've seen is that it's not so much that the ladder is going up from earth to heaven, but the ladder that's represented here is coming from heaven down to earth. It doesn't originate here, and it's certainly not man-made like it was in Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? We're, we are mighty. We will build a ladder to heaven, and it doesn't, a tower to heaven. It doesn't work. God scattered them, made it where they couldn't understand each other. But here what we're seeing is that this is God bridging a big gap between heaven and earth. And what we talked about is that the ladder represents who? Jesus. You could have just given Sunday school answer there and gotten that right. It represents Jesus. Turn to Romans 5. Keep your finger in Genesis. But turn to Romans 5, 1 through 2. Hopefully this week we'll understand a little more clearly what exactly God is doing here and what he's revealing to Jacob and why in the world does it matter to us as we're sitting here on a Wednesday in April 2010. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we have peace with God? Through Jesus. And why do we need peace with God? Because we're crossways. Because of what? Sin. And because of our sin, what do we deserve from God? What have we in fact earned? Death, eternal separation, God's wrath. But here we're seeing that through Christ, we have peace with God. That means that wrath had to go somewhere. Did it just go away? No. Christ absorbed it. That's why we value and worship and praise and treasure our Lord. Because Jesus Christ, propitiation, absorbed the wrath that was due to us. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Turn to John one fifty one. Just so you know, I'm not trying to draw a vague familiarity between the latter and Jesus Jesus makes a comment that clears it up for us in John 1, 51. And he's just called his first disciples. Uh, here's Philip, there's Nathaniel. And uh, in verse 50, Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What we're seeing here is this beautiful picture of grace. If you go back to Genesis 28, you can write it in the column right there next to it. This is grace. This is undeserved engagement of a totally unrespectable, unworthy people by a perfect God. And he's showing us with this ladder that he's bridged the gap between heaven and earth, unexpectedly engaged by and loved by the one true God and forever changed. And what I want us to see here is that this isn't just a neat, symbolic fairy tale or anything like that. What just happened is that Jacob was engaged by God for the first time in his life. He's heard a lot about him from granddad, from dad, or probably not from granddad, but from dad, and about what he did in his granddad's life. They talk about him at home, but this is the first time that he's had a real engagement with the Lord. 
And what does God reveal to him? Truth about who? Jesus. Here in Genesis chapter 28, with the third generation, we got Abraham, we got Isaac, we got Jacob. He is in the wilderness in a place of uncertainty, fear. He may be filled with anxiety. He's alone. But it turns out he's not alone. God comes and shows him this beautiful picture of Jesus. Jacob just learned something about Jesus from the mouth of God. That's a big deal. Our jaws should kind of drop there. We should be like, wow, that, seriously, that, that happened. What did Jacob do to earn that? Absolutely nothing. He's a sissy. He's, he's not a God-fearing man to this point, but here we're seeing a, a difference. We're seeing a change in him. So, a uh, beautiful picture of grace. Not only does Jacob now sense and experience God's presence, but he knows from this point forward he'll never be without it. That changes people. That changed Jacob, and it should change us. I'm with you and will keep, keep you wherever you go. These are the kind of promises that should forge in us reason and new ability to persevere through hard times. To understand that the hand of God is certain even in our times of seemingly great uncertainty. And what we talked about last week was that he doesn't know what every part of the journey holds, but he knows that it leads where? To who? God. That's important. The point of the gospel is not just forgiveness. It's not just that you get mercy and grace. It's not just that you know Jesus. All of that exists for the purpose of taking you to God. You have a soul that exists eternally. And for those who have this truth revealed to them about Jesus, as it has been revealed to Jacob, they know that the journey, no matter how much uncertainty there is, the future is God. God is the gospel. Jacob obtains a divine purpose that changes everything. See, he's left home, and rather than randomly trying his hand in a world of unknowns, he has a new perspective and command to fulfill God's promises. God has said, you're in the wilderness. It's late at night. You don't even got a real pillow. You got a rock. You are um, having this crazy dream, and I'm God, and I'm showing you some new things, and, and, and I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use you to bless the entire earth. You're old, and you're alone, but I'm telling you, you're going to have a wife, and you're going to have a lot of children, and your offspring will be a blessing. And ultimately, what's going to happen is that the Messiah will come through his lineage. This is a big deal. Uh, so my question for you, room full of people with a divine purpose, how are your uncertain days changed by your new calling? I just kind of want to have a little conversation. How are your uncertain days? He was in a pretty uncertain moment, but God put a call on his life and uh, things changed. How are your days changed because of your calling, especially your uncertain days? What are some things you have to keep in mind as you're going through an uncertain day? Maybe even a particularly hard day. God's purposes will be accomplished. What? Yeah, his mercies are new every morning. So this morning, you woke up and you had no idea what measure of mercy you had, but you had enough to get through the day. Some of you may have had a fairly easy day and you had exactly what you needed. But usually when you have a really horrible day where everything falls out, you don't wake up knowing that. But what you can wake up knowing is I have mercy, his mercies are new every morning to give me exactly what I need to get through the day in a God-glorifying, God-honoring, faithful way. How else are you changed? Yeah. This is temporary. This is not, I mean, if things aren't all right here, that's okay, because what are we supposed to set our minds on? The things above. So our lives are changed. Look at verses 16 through 17. 
And not just like sort of changed. Like, you're supposed to live kind of differently now. Like, this is a radical God, heaven, bridging the gap to earth, meeting sinners in their filth and saying, no, 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 your life is different and you're going to live for a different reason. Uh, And and I don't want you to just talk about it. I don't want you to just gather and study over it. I want you to live this out and things are going to change for you. And you have a divine purpose and a divine calling. And look at verse 16 through 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep after this Jacob's latter vision, dream. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. (laughs) And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Have you ever seen someone like you tell them something and they never knew it before, and then they turn around and they're like so excited to tell everybody because they didn't know it before, but it doesn't seem all groundbreaking because you're the one who told them? Does that ever happen? Okay, uh, let me say it a different way. Why did Jacob uh, not know that the Lord was in this place? How was he traveling and sleeping on a rock and having a weird dream? But he didn't know that the Lord was in that place. Yeah, God hadn't shown him yet. God had not yet revealed himself to Jacob. So we see this amazing thing where God reveals himself to us, and he wakes up, and the first thing he says is, God's here. Like, we know. We just saw what God said. He revealed himself to the latter. We saw Jesus. Yeah, he, he is. So it's, it's kind of a Captain Obvious verse in verse 16. God had not yet revealed himself to Jacob. That was why he did not know that it was uh, the place that it was. After such comfort from the Lord, why do you think Jacob was afraid? It said, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Why do you think he was afraid? Yeah, wouldn't you be? You said this trippy dream where like the, 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 it's Jesus and the ladder, angels ascending and descending, bridge, God showed up. You've never heard God's voice before. Things change when you've never heard God's voice before. And God says, guess what? I'm blessing the entire earth through your lineage. I'm going to change everything. You are going to be used for mighty things. And I will accomplish all my divine purposes by way of little you. I'd be afraid too. Proverbs 9.10, and it also says it again in Psalm 119, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Little young 70-year-old Jacob is beginning to grow in wisdom here. That's what's happening. He fears the Lord rightly. He sounds like a doofus, but he fears the Lord rightly. He, he wakes up, and Jacob is beginning to grow in wisdom because he rightly fears the Lord. Without this fear, without a right fear of the Lord, you end up with a man-centered, works-based living, which is not faith. If he hadn't have feared the Lord in that situation, there would have been a problem. If he woke up and said, oh my goodness, I'm a man. Turns out God really needs me. The whole earth will be, I don't even have a woman yet, but I'm going to have lots of babies. Look how amazing I am. That would be a problem. That would be a a misunderstanding of what just happened. But here it says he fears the Lord, and it's right, and it's good. He's growing in that. There's two different views that could happen here. Um, when, When God reveals himself to us, fear is the right response. Not like, like I can't move and, and I'm terrified and, and I don't want to do anything wrong kind of fear, but, but a respect, awe-filled fear of the Lord, a reverent fear of the Lord. And there's two different things that could happen. You could have a view of God that says, I could use God's help, and that's not a right approach to God. 
Like when something is revealed to you about the Almighty God and it intersects your life and, and you're in your sin and someone says, no, this is what God's plan is and this is what he's doing. And your response is, I could maybe use God's help. That's a wrong response. You're in the wrong place at that point. The other possibility is that you could really, uh, you could really understand what's going on. You could say, I desperately need God every moment. There's no way I can proceed in faith without the Lord. And there, those are two approaches that are the difference between fearing the Lord and not fearing the Lord. Because there's a lot of times where we try to foist some fake gospel, we, meaning proclaiming believers, can sometimes do this, where you kind of push people onto a fake gospel that says, you could, you could use some help from the Lord. You just need a little help, and he'll come alongside you, and he'll make your finances better, and he'll do this, and you just need a little, little love from the big guy upstairs. That's not reality. Reality is, is we desperately need him every moment of every day to do anything faithful in a pleasing way that glorifies him according to his purposes. A few things I want to consider about sacred space. He says, surely this place is what? Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. How awesome is this place? A few things about sacred space in the presence of God. Why is the space sacred? It's one thing I want to just establish up front. Why is the space sacred? Because God's there. Not because he said it was. That's really important. Because if it's just sacred because he said it was, it really doesn't have much to do with God. It has more to do with you know, superstition and a feeling that you get at a certain place. The space is sacred because God shows up, not because Jacob said it was. Um, too often, I think that uh, we think it's up to us to engage God in a significant way. And I was thinking about my upbringing and, you know, being in a, in a big youth group and having different things that go on. And I had a skewed view of a lot of things for a long time, still do in a lot of ways. Um, certainly haven't arrived at any place in particular, but too often we think it's up to us to engage God in a significant way. Um, I remember our prep for Disciple Now weekends when I was growing up. This is what I thought about when I was thinking about this. Our prepping for Disciple Now weekends. Um, has anyone ever been to a Disciple Now weekend in here? Okay. Like, like a few of you. Okay. There was an anticipation and a sense of excitement that this great guest speaker and this awesome worship band would create an atmosphere where God would really show up. And in the band I was in previous, we played at a lot of these and uh, where God would really show up. And you really didn't want to let anyone down. You wanted to put on your best so that God would really show up. But oddly, in my mind, so much of God's acknowledged presence was on my terms. And that's wrong. That's backwards. None of this is on Jacob's terms. Jacob is kicked out of the house on his own, no money, even though he's among the most blessed of the earth, dependent upon God for everything, sleeping with a rock for a pillow, and he has this dream and God shows up. These are not Jacob's terms. If it was on Jacob's terms, it would have happened differently. It probably would have happened while he was in the house, being fed by somebody or something. Here, what is happening is that it's not on Jacob's terms. It's not on our terms either. It's like saying, okay, I've got 30 minutes this morning before the kids wake up. I, for these 30 minutes, Lord... I'm going to sit with my coffee and my Bible and my journal. Okay, God, now. Now. Show up and do something amazing. Make me cry. Whatever. But I got like 30 minutes. That's not how it works. I'm not saying that it's not important for you to set a time particular times for devotions and for prayer. I think that's very important. What I am saying is that there is a greater reality that we must be more aware of. We don't only engage God on our terms. We don't show up on a Sunday morning and say, okay, 
no work today. Kids are here. We're all, okay, now I'm ready. Okay, God, whatever. I'm ready. I got like an hour. That's not how we engage God. The reality that we have for us is much bigger than that. What is Jacob's reality? I've said it a little bit, but what's his situation? He's uncomfortable. He's a little desperate. A little desperate? That's an understatement. Old and nearly out of the house. Just don't seem to go together. Yeah, he's, he's, his, his, his big hairy brother wants to kill him. We would not normally set it up like, okay, now I'm ready, Lord. He wants to kill me. I'm alone and broke. Now. What we see here is that his reality shows us, God has taken him to the wilderness, shown him ultimate realities in the midst of Jacob's time of uncertainty, fear, anxiety, and even danger. Um, sometimes we have our, some realities about God revealed to us in some really desperate circumstances. And it's funny because it's because he intercedes and shows us. It's not like, oh God, today's horrible. This is like the worst situation ever. I'm ready to hear from you, Lord. Usually he surprises us, kind of like he surprised Jacob here with this amazing dream. Usually it's a surprise in jail. I've, I've visited guys in jail that it was, it's amazing. You get all the other junk out of their life and they're in jail and they don't have, <laughs> certain decisions are taken out of their, their, the possibilities and they're sitting there and it's like, I've never been closer to the Lord than I am right now on the other side of the, the plate of glass. I'm like, good. I guess it's, this is a perfect place for someone to be close to Jesus because there's a lot less distractions. Not what you would expect. Okay, Lord, I'm in jail. Speak to me. But it's, it's a reality. Sometimes it's after a really bad day at work. Sometimes it's during the middle of a crisis. Sometimes it's in the middle of heartache that God shows us amazing things about himself and his plan and about ourselves and how much we are absolutely not God. As believers, we've got to always be listening for God. There's no compartmentalizing. Remember the promise. We've got to connect these dots here. What does God say to him? I am what? What, what does God promise to Jacob? I will show up when you call on me. I'm just a phone call away. Now, what does he say? I will not leave you. I will be with you. And I will keep you wherever you go. If the space is sacred because God is present, remember, it's not, it's not a sacred place because he said it was. It is because God's present. God's made himself known. If the space is sacred because God is present and God promises to be with us wherever we go, believers, what are we starting to see add up here? If the space is sacred because God's present and then God promises his children, I will be with you wherever you go, then for us, you know what that means? It means that the presence of God should be sensed and felt when people of God are present. It's being a shiny light in darkness. It's being a sweet aroma in the middle of a whole bunch of stink. That's the way it's supposed to be. God says, I'm with you wherever you go. This space that he's in when he wakes up, surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. It's because he's with you. You're his child and he cares for you and he doesn't leave you or forsake you. And that's how it is with us. There's no point in your life where you can say, I am without the Lord. There may be times where it feels like he's hiding his face from you. There may be times where he is hiding his face from you, but he's present that's complicated. Don't ask any questions about it. We'll talk about it later. But he's always present. He never leaves or forsakes his children. So that means that where you are, God's presence should be sensed, felt, 
That's how you're light in a dark place. That's how you're a sweet aroma in the middle of stink. And this helps us with two important things. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.20. If you remember that God is with you wherever you go. Because for Jacob, it's not like he's just got this other factor in his life called God now. His whole life has changed. What he's heard about a lot from mommy and daddy and, you know, mommy and daddy's life and granddad's life, um, here is a reality for him now and his whole life has changed. God's not just some other factor that has to be taken into account when he's making his decisions. Every single one of his decisions now have to come in line with the fact that the Lord has spoken and you are the Lord's. And here in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Can you imagine that? God making his appeal through a bunch of losers like us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You're ambassadors for Christ. So when we remember this promise that God has given to his children, I'm with you and keep you wherever you go, he reminds us that we're ambassadors, speaking no longer on our own behalf, but communicating the message of the king. How can we implore others to be reconciled to God if we're too busy ignoring his presence? It doesn't make sense. We will implore others to be reconciled to God if we have a continual awareness of God's presence. And at every opportunity where you can help, where you can provide insight, where you can show love and not ever become weary of showing love to people, you're speaking on the king's behalf. And if you are ignoring the presence of God, then you will not rightly speak on his behalf. The other thing that will happen is that you will continue to sin in his presence and persevere in sin rather than in love and putting that sin to death. Turn to Colossians 3. Just a few books to the right, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 3, and just look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. Here, like Jacob pre-seeing God here. In these things you once walked, you once walked in being a sissy mama's boy covered in goat hair, deceiving your father, stealing from your brother, and being just flat out deceptive in almost every word that comes out of your mouth, lying six times in one sentence because you want to get your own way. In those ways you once walked, but now God has stepped in and said, no, now you're mine. You've always been mine, and I want you to understand that I've got a plan um, that does not include all of your wants and desires, but it includes my will and my commands. And so in these ways, you once walked um, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. We don't dabble in sin. We don't play around with it. You're called to put it to death. Not wound it, but kill it. It reminds us to put sin to death. There's a horrible confusion when God's people continue in sin against a God who is there to keep us wherever we go. Those things don't add up. So I will, I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go are things we're reminded to speak on his behalf and put sin to death. Knowing that he's present, he enables us to do that. You can't do that on your own. God has to be present for those things to happen. Look at verse 18 in Genesis 28. Eighteen through nineteen. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, former pillow, and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. What is um, here? What we have is a memorial. 
What do y'all think of when you think of a memorial? I think of bagpipes. I don't know why. What do y'all think of? Commemorating something that's died or someone that's died. Big statues. This is a memorial that he puts up here. The Expositor's Bible Commentary makes a really, really insightful comment that I want to kind of dissect here. He's making a memorial, not an idol. And we've got to see the difference between the two. A memorial serves a good purpose, an idol serves an obviously not good purpose. And I want us to see the difference between the two. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says this. It's a really, really great thing to consider. One great secret in the growth of character is the art of prolonging the quickening power of right ideas, of perpetuating just and inspiring impressions. And he who despises the aid of all external helps for the accomplishment of this object is not likely, likely to succeed. That is a really complicated way of saying, when you see something good and insightful and shiny in the middle of darkness and a sweet aroma in the middle of stink, it's best to not forget about it immediately. Think on it. Remember it. Write something down that says, I don't want to forget that. That's good. So when it says a great secret in the growth of character. We know that's a good thing. We, the character and endurance, glory of God, it all goes together. Is the art of prolonging the quickening power of right ideas. When you hear something that's good for the first time, maybe it's the gospel, for instance. You th- the quickening power of right ideas, this, this, this clarity of the gospel. When you hear it for the first time, it's not something that an hour from now doesn't really matter. It's supposed to have an impact. We want to remember things. Um, this, uh, the difference, this is the difference between idols and, and memorials. A memorial helps you to remember the right thing. An idol makes you worship the wrong thing. This is, in fact, even the difference between good worship music and bad worship music. Um, good art and bad art. Um, like the lives of those made great by God, these things should point us to God. Remember when he says to Abraham, when God says to Abraham, I will make your name great? It's so that Abraham wouldn't say, look at me, I'm Father Abraham, I'm great. It's so that they would look at him and he would be pointing to God. These things, these memorials, when rightly, like here, he sets up this memorial, it's so that he remembers the good things. Question, what are some examples that you guys can think of of a sort of memorial? that helps you remember good things point, the point to God the cross y'all walked under the huge Angus cross right here at the door Like, did y'all all walk by it does everyone know you walked by it it's there to remind you of the Lord not to say look at that cross it's pointing to God a cross reminds us of Jesus which reminds us of God, which is good. So what are some other ways? Maybe you don't have to plant a 25-foot one in the ground. What are some, maybe you're wearing it on your neck. Maybe you have a ring. Okay, what are some other, some other examples of uh, a memorial? Something that reminds you of God. It doesn't have to be complex. Go ahead. Truth written down in a journal. Yeah, I keep a journal because it helps me to go back and remember what God's done. That's an important thing. A rainbow. 
which means that God will never flood the earth again. Nothing else. We're going to redeem that symbol. Um, what else? Wedding ring. It's a circle. It reminds, sorry. Communion, absolutely. What does communion remind us of? You just thought Sunday school answer if you want. Jesus, yeah. The body, the blood. He died for our sins. Reminds us, gets us to God. It's good. What else? Jewelry, sculpture, statues, art, a post-it note on your mirror, a date marked on your calendar. It doesn't have to be real complex, but it's good to have things along the way that make you remember, oh, okay, that's good. I need to remember that because that helps me to understand God. And I want to have clarity in my mind about who God is and what he's doing so that I'm not foolish. I want to be sober-minded, not a mind that's like it's intoxicated with a bunch of worldly junk. Tattoos are another thing. Usually people get tattoos to memorialize something, whether it's a thought, whether it's a truth, whether it's a person, whether it's just a, a, a way of living, whatever. It can be anything across the board here. Everything from a statue to a post-it note. It doesn't have to be super complex. What happens when it fails to point to God? What happens when the memorial fails to point to God? It becomes an idol. Turn to Romans 1. Keep your finger in Genesis 28. In Romans 1, it shows us what happens when something fails to point to God. Look at verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Not sober-minded, but futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. When the memorial fails to point to God, it becomes an idol, and you worship the created thing, not the creator. And God says that's what he's pointing his wrath at because that suppresses the truth. It points to the wrong thing. It points to creation rather than creator, and that suppresses the truth. And the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Now, in Genesis 28, we'll end the chapter here, verses 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. What is revealed about Jacob in this vow? He's still a bonehead schemer. Still got a little goat hair on him, left over from the last thing. Why, why, does it, why is that revealed? How does he start the vow to God? If? What? Do any of y'all pray that way? Oh, we probably do, but we're not supposed to. Yeah, we probably do, but we're not supposed to. If, Lord, if you will do this, then... This will be the situation as I see it fit. 
as a little God in my own little world, my own kingdom. No, that's not the way it is. He's a schemer. There's an if-then statement. That's not a good vow to God. If you're going to make a big, bold vow to the Lord after he's revealed himself to you in an amazing dream that they write, that Led Zeppelin writes songs about, you don't start it with an if-then statement. It doesn't work like that. It's foolishness. An if-then statement is not usually the best way to start a vow. It makes it sound more like a conditional deal. Anyone ever bought a car? Well, if you can do this, then I can do this. That's not the way we're supposed to go with it. However, this is often how new believers pray. He's, he's still scheming. He's not a mature, reformed, <laughs> thoughtful, calm, patient man, eloquent in the words that he shares, poetic in the way he speaks to the Lord. He's a baby believer here. He just had his first encounter with the living God. And this is okay. This is pretty good. It's not great. It's not like, okay, we should all make vows like Jacob. It was an if-then statement. But it's a start. What this reminds us of is it's not to be dismissed. We've got to be patient. When there's new life in someone, when someone's been walking in utter wickedness and self-serving manner, and God says, hey, I'm God, and I want to show you something that will rock your world because it's about me and not you. What we will see here is that um, there's progressive change that takes place. Now, it's, if he's not going to come out and immediately be just perfectly eloquent and rightly understanding who God is and explaining to everybody else around him who God is with a vow that's perfectly worded according to every biblical aspect of truth, it's a start. And we need to be patient with new believers in the same way that God is patient with Jacob and us. Did all of you start your journey of faith in, in the exact place that you are now? I mean, there's a difference. I'm not saying that Jacob can continue to be a self-serving loser who doesn't care about God. That's not a start. That's moving backwards. You had an encounter with God. You don't move backwards from there. But there's progress, and you want to see those signs of it. It's not to be totally dismissed. It's not the most eloquent vow. He's still a bit of a schemer. But it's not to be totally dismissed. I have a video clip. I've never gotten to say that on a Wednesday. Um, uh, and I, was, uh, I thought about this. I can't believe I got it on video. But I thought about this because it's my daughter, Ella, sharing the gospel. And it's not quite right. But that doesn't mean you just dismiss her as a little moron either. You see what I'm saying? Like, I'm thankful for the things that I see in this video clip because it's... It's, there's some things that are good. There's other things, not so much. But I wanted to show you the clip as a reminder that everything's not to be dismissed when it's not exactly perfectly right, but it, there's teaching moments, and you're patient, and you want to help people to persevere in the truth. And if there's not truth there, you want to say, hey, that's not right. Put that away. This is the truth. Persevere in this. And it takes patience. So roll that clip. Yeah. Because Jesus went through the cross, got out it, put nails on him. Okay. And the soldiers put nails up, made Jesus work hard, and then make the cross. And so Jesus worked hard, 
and work hard and tell the disciples said, tell the disciples said, I'm so sad that Jesus went down the cross. And then Jesus dropped the coin in the spooky forest. So then Jesus dropped the coin in the spooky forest? Yeah. Okay. And then the bats came eat it. And then the lions and tigers come and growl. And then Jesus was the one who was not scared of his body. And then the end. The end? No, and then God said, let light shine. And then... <laughs> And then um, Jesus got the cross and went in the forest, got the coin out of the bat's mouth, and then the end. Okay, clearly she's not perfectly tracking with the way I told it to her. <laughs> However, it's not worth saying, you are just a little moron. Oh, that is not right. Jesus did not put the coin in the bat's mouth. Yes, he's mighty, but that wasn't why he went to the spooky forest to get the coin out of the bat's mouth. I have no idea what she's talking about. I think it's Dora. Um, and then God said, let there be light. And then there were lions and tigers. I mean, she was all over the map. But like I was sitting there listening to it, and I'm thinking, but there's good things in there. What do I want to do there? I want to help her persevere in the truth and not focus so much on the coin in the bat's mouth with the lion and the tigers in the spooky forest. That wasn't really part of the story. But she's hearing things. And I want to help her to persevere in that truth. Jacob knows that even though he is among the most blessed of the earth, he must still depend upon God for the most common necessities, such as bread and clothing. Note here, then the Lord shall be my God. That's what he says. If all these things happen, if I am fed and clothed, and if I get back home, then the Lord shall be my God. This shows a lack of understanding on Jacob's part. God will not do these things that he has promised and then be Jacob's God. God has nothing to prove to Jacob. God's not saying, okay, I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to follow through. Then I'm going to be your God. Deal? That's not how it works. God doesn't have anything to prove. What has God stated? God has stated, I'm the Lord. And on Jacob's entire journey, he's actively Jacob's God with Jacob, keeping Jacob wherever he goes. Jacob thought he was alone. Turned out he wasn't. Why? Because God was there with him. Why should this matter to us? God is more active right now in our lives than many of us realize. I mean, cold night, all alone, away from the family for the first time, scared. Big hairy brother wants to kill you. The, the situation here, God's more active in our lives right now than we realize, just as it was in Jacob. There's an imbalance when we only worship God because we realize that he's doing something great. That, there's a psalm that Ben shared a couple weeks ago in our mobile worship service, Psalm 9, 1 through 2. And what it explains is that the wholehearted worshiper will recount all the wonderful deeds of the Lord. All of them. If you want to recount all the wonderful deeds of the Lord, you've got to have your eyes open. You've got to be seeing what he's doing. You've got to be connecting the dots when you see him working over here and you see him working over here. And you want to tell people and you want, you want them to see how great God truly is. You're not trying to make a small God look real big because he's not really big. He's just small. That's not what we're doing. We're, we're, we're wanting to make sure this God who seems so distant to so many is seen with greater clarity because we're paying attention to what he's doing and we're recounting his deeds. Um, recount all of his wonderful deeds. Interestingly, here at the end of the chapter, Jacob's on Mount Moriah, which would one day be the place where the temple uh, is built, which represents the presence of God with his people. 
So at the end where he says, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar should be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob's had a serious night here. God's shown him stuff about Jesus. God's shown him stuff about the church. God's shown him stuff about giving and a tithe, sacrificial. Like, that's a big first encounter with the Lord. It's been a big night for Jacob. Um, the thing that we can't miss is, is God's incredible grace to stoop from heaven in the person of Christ to save a bunch of goat-haired swindlers like us, just like Jacob. And in our most uncertain moments of depravity and loneliness, those are sometimes uh, some of the times when we experience God's presence in ways that we otherwise uh, never would have known. Appreciate here that God is revealing beauties about Jesus and the future of the church to a guy who's a total bonehead. And he's shown so much grace in this. So I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that that's the same, the same favor that we've been shown, though we don't deserve it. The same respect that we've been shown from a mighty God, even though we're completely not respectable. Does that make sense? Any questions or thoughts? Man, I'm glad it's so crystal clear. That's so encouraging. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, this is God's breathed-out word, not just a book about God. So when we read God's promise in here, it's breathed out by God. But we still sometimes can do the same if-then conditional stuff. God just showed up and said, I am God. This is what I'm going to do. I accomplish all my purpose. Bam. I'm God. And Jacob says, okay, if you do this like you said, and if you do this like you said, then you'll be my God. We can do the same thing. This is God's breathed out word. If we read that he says, this is how it's going to be. This is how you need to live. This is the things you need to do. And if we say, okay, we'll do that. If it goes well, then you'll be my God. Or I'll keep doing it. And if not, then maybe I'll choose something else. We can't do that. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah. God, God's doing them not because he's, okay, Jacob, I'm going to take you up on that, buddy. Yeah. 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 I think like a lot of us, when we begin our journey, what we're seeing with Jacob is that he really doesn't know what the blessing entails. And when I started my journey of faith, I, I knew I didn't want to go to hell. I mean, I knew that much. I didn't know how majestic and wonderful of a treasure our, our Lord is. And so I think that that's what's happening with Jacob here is he's learning along the way. I heard about this. I'm walking in this. God's engaged me, and now I'm getting to see the beauty of... I mean, he just saw God standing up at the top of the ladder speaking to him. 
And somehow God chose to manifest himself in a way where Jacob wouldn't die in seeing that. It's amazing. But just like every other believer, along the way, you begin to grow in your understanding and that knowledge and that fear of the Lord because you see how magnificent he is. It's a, uh, yeah, it's this, you're quickened to persevere in it, like what it says in Deuteronomy 6 about when you're walking, when you're sitting down, when you're, when you're talking, when you're up, when you're talking, when you're going along the way. At all times, uh, his truths are on our lips, and we're trying to pay attention to what he's doing so that we're in line with his will and doing what he would have us to do for his glory. It definitely, I mean, these are the blessed, the most blessed to walk the earth. I mean, he just saw God, and uh, and it's, it's uh it is a journey of faith, no doubt. Any other thoughts or questions? Sweet, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Uh, we pray that um, in some way you would memorialize these truths in our head where we don't just, just uh, forget about all this in an hour, but that we abide in the Word. We abide in the true vine. And that we walk in the truth and we're obedient to your will. I pray that we would be a people who are sober-minded. That our minds aren't clouded with a bunch of other stuff that chokes out your truth. But that in all things, at all times, we're mindful that you are doing things, you are moving, you are working. And that we're called to recount all of your wonderful deeds as wholehearted worshipers. God, the fact that you would stoop in this way in Christ, bridging the gap from heaven to earth to a totally undeserving people, I pray that that's never commonplace to us. I pray that when we talk about Jesus and salvation and redemption and forgiveness of sin, I pray that it's never just, oh yeah, that's cool. That happened to me when I was eight. I pray that we enjoy it every single day. I pray that it creates in us a passion to really walk in the truth and to be bright and salty and aromatic the way you would have us. Help us to be patient as we share the gospel with others and walk in that truth with them and help them to persevere in the truth. And then as they grow in it, we're iron sharpening iron and we're helping each other mutually to persevere in the truth. Pray that we would be about your will and not our own at all times in every circumstance. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you are always with us and you never leave us or forsake us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.